Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows and more information about us on our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. I would love to hear from you. Happy Earth Day, everyone. It is Earth Month. April is Earth Month, and we're coming up on Earth Day. And this is going to be a special Earth Day episode. We're going to focus on the environmental impacts of animal agriculture. And I'll soon be bringing in our guest, uh, Kartik Shaker. He will be talking about new technologies for a world after meat. But I wanted to start with some news related to Earth Day and also talk about some personal solutions I would love to to offer. First, though, there was a recent IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they do this deep and comprehensive report about the state of climate disruption about every seven years. And this their seven-year report just came out recently, and they found that the effects from climate change are getting even more severe worse than previously predicted, extreme weather events, losing more ice, losing more coastal areas. All of this is happening at a much more rapid rate than previously thought. And I think we can all feel that and see that in the news reports around weather. You know, you you just see it daily. Uh, you hear about it daily from all parts of the globe. So we must stay under that 1.5 degree increase to avert the worst of the worst from happening. We're now at about 1.1. So we just, we can't keep hitting the snooze button on this issue. Uh, This report is an alarming wake-up call that we have to take action now. So I've talked about this problem extensively on this podcast, the harms and impacts of animal agriculture uh, on the environment, and I've had wonderful expert guests on as well talking about this issue, and I certainly will again. But today I thought we would focus on solutions. It's Earth Day, we're celebrating the Earth, so let's talk about some positive things that we can do both personally and that we can support on a systematic level. So with that in mind, I wanted to share with you all some personal things that I do, that Kojin and I do in our household to live more ecologically. On the last episode, we had Jasmine Singer on the podcast, and she shared with us all about how she's making her house net zero. And I wanted to share with you kind of the poor gal's version. (laughs) So no big costly renovations, but just things that you can do around the house to uh, reduce your impact. And, you know, if you do own your home and you can do those big projects, that's awesome. Please do. But for those that are unable to do those kind of big projects, you know, solar panels and that kind of thing, Here's some smaller suggestions. Well, maybe not smaller, but more accessible. Let's say more accessible uh, solutions and suggestions. So the first and biggest piece, of course, is to live vegan. This reduces the harm that your lifestyle and your household causes to the environment considerably. So if you have that going on 
that's awesome. And if you are feeling comfortable in buying and eating vegan, then you might consider taking it to the next level, taking uh, next level vegan, next level eco living, right? And incorporating a few of the things that I'm going to be talking about here. So these are some things that Cogen and I do in our household to reduce our carbon footprint, reduce our ecological impact. And one thing is that we have only one electric car for the two of us. No car would be best. And if you can do that, then you're rocking it. That's awesome. But uh, in non-pandemic times, I did a lot of tabling where I have a car full of vegan literature and t-shirts and all of that and would go do educational tabling at events and will hopefully be getting back into that someday soon. So I need a vehicle for that. We both primarily work from home though, so it's worked out really well for us to just have one car. When we made the decision years, it's been years now, years ago, uh, to not replace our second car, we thought, At that time, if there was ever a time when we both really needed a car the same day, we would rent a car for one of us, like one of us would rent a car. But we haven't had to do that. It's been fairly easy, a lot easier than we thought it was going to be. But we also, like I said, both, you know, have the privilege of of working from home. So, uh, So it wouldn't work out for everyone. We also don't have kids, so that helps a lot. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just, you know, thinking about reducing that, uh, household impact down to one car is a great thing. Okay. So let's move into the kitchen. So one of the biggest impacts in the kitchen is paper and plastic, paper or plastic, that horrible question at the supermarket where you pull out your cloth bag and say, neither, right? Um, so in the kitchen, uh, paper and plastic, paper towels, are still so widely used in the kitchen and it's so unnecessary. I haven't used paper towels for decades. Uh, I just have cotton kitchen towels for everything. Um, Inorganic cotton is best if you can afford it. Mine come from the thrift store so they can be much cheaper. (laughs) And, And I have clean ones hanging, you know, around for wiping hands, wiping countertops. And then I stash some rags, more kind of gunky stained towels for the kind of big messes and yucky jobs. Please don't buy paper cups or paper napkins, anything like that. It's just not necessary. Use the reusable. Everything in the kitchen, you already have it in your household. Uh, So use the reusable and washable stuff and you'll save trees and eliminate paper use. Plastic is much harder. Plastic is, uh, it's, it's really, really it's so it's just everywhere, right? It's ubiquitous. It's very hard to avoid. I've really tried to reduce my plastic use. It's very difficult. Uh, the food that you buy in plastic packaging, that's a huge impact. And so when I'm at the store, I really try to be mindful of every product and really assess it, right? As vegans, we already do that. We're already scrutinizing the ingredients uh, and making sure that it's vegan. Well, if you're already comfortable with that, now maybe take it to the next level and assess the product ecologically. Is it organic? Is it in a plastic container? Is there another option, Uh, glass or some other material? And okay, so there's one in glass, but it's not organic. And then the organic one is in plastic. Ugh, I, (laughs) I run into this all the time. 
Well, you just do the best you can, right? Make an assessment, do the best we can. And this is where living earth-friendly and living vegan, it really goes along with living mindfully. I mean, you can make every shopping experience a meditation on nonviolence and making the best choices we can for the planet and for the animals. Uh, You know, try not to get overwhelmed, though, and lose your mind about how bad it is because there's just no tofu that isn't in plastic. Ah. <laughs> I, get, I, I just get driven crazy by this. Ah, okay, breathe. We're having a mindful shopping experience. <laughs> and laugh too, because it's, it can be overwhelming, of course. So one area that I have been able to reduce my plastic considerably is produce shopping. I now buy all my produce in cloth bags, and I have all kinds of different size cloth bags that I use. And then I put my produce in the fridge in these cloth bags that you that you get wet. They're like they're damp. You get them damp. And they're made for produce use. They're these big, kind of like a pocket. And you put the produce in and kind of wrap the damp cloth around it. And not only is it a huge reduction in our plastic use, I think it keeps the produce longer. So look for these produce bags that you can use to keep your produce in the fridge. So making our own food has also been a huge reduction in our plastic packaging. So Cogent and I now make our own nut and seed milks. So it's just buying the seeds and nuts. So it's like zero packaging, basically. I make my own granola. Cogent makes his own hummus. So this has helped reduce our packaging considerably. Of course, this can be time-consuming, and it was, and that was my concern the reason why I didn't do these things for a long time. So we just brought them in kind of one at a time when we had time. And now they're in our weekly routine. And they actually don't take a lot of time at all now that we have them kind of incorporated into our routine. Okay, moving on to the bathroom. This is another area where there can be a lot of plastic packaging for body care products so I'm I'm lucky in this area here because I use very little product in the bathroom. I am a low maintenance woman. <laughs> I have like my teeth stuff, shampoo and soap, and that's about it. I, I I do put makeup on to give presentations, so it's but it's very minimally and I use very little and I have like the same tube of mascara that I've had for like a decade. So that's how little I use. Uh, but uh, Kojin actually uses more product than I do. Hey, no judgment there. And, you know, no judgment to anyone. You got to do what you got to do to feel good in this world. And, you know, I, I get it. So just do the best you can when choosing those products as far as the ingredients and the uh, the packaging. Of course, all bath and beauty products should be vegan with no animal testing. I mean, that's just should be baseline. Uh, but as far as the eco goes, I get bars of soap with minimal or no packaging. Uh, there's bulk soaps that don't have any packaging, and I actually have a bag specific for soap when I go shopping, so that that doesn't get food in it because it's you know going to have a soapy kind of residue. But uh, so I have a bag for bulk soap bars, and. Um, Please try to avoid liquid soap in the plastic container. It's just not necessary. Get a bar. Uh, 
And then for shampoo, that's harder. It's harder to find shampoo that's not in a plastic bottle. I have tried the sh- I tried a shampoo bar. I'll say one one brand, and I didn't like it. Um, they have this it, a shampoo bar is a basically it's like a bar of soap, but it's to lather up and use in your hair. And I didn't like the one I tried. I should really give another brand a try. I I need to do that. If anybody out there has a brand of shampoo bar that they like, let me know. Um, I I want to try again. I need to try again. But again, here in California, I'm very lucky because in Sacramento, there is a bulk store called Refill Madness. Get it? Refill, like Reefer Madness, Refill Madness. (laughs) It's, okay, very silly name, kind of clever, very silly. Uh, But anyway, I'm able to refill my shampoo bottles there, as well as my uh, liquid laundry detergent. So I'm able to do a lot of refilling of bottles there at that bulk store. They even have a brand where they go to the warehouse and refill their bottles. So it's just zero plastic use. So I'm always sure to buy that brand. Your local co-op or natural food store might also have bulk liquid options, uh, all kinds of bulk options that you may not have thought of. So look around, look for those. Uh, Laundry, shampoo, maple syrup, all kinds of things can be bought in bulk. So moving on to tooth care, we've moved over to this organic corn floss that comes in a reusable glass container. So they're like these little little glass vials and you can buy the refillable floss to put in it. So you only need one of the vials and you start buying the reusable or refillable floss, not reusable, <laughs> refillable floss to add to the container. And uh, it's it's um, corn floss, organic corn floss, vegan wax. You got to be careful with eco flosses. Sometimes they're made from silk. Sometimes they use beeswax. But you can find vegan options. I think back on all the little plastic containers of floss that I have thrown away over the years. Oh God, I'm 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 so grateful. That there's this option now. We also buy bamboo toothbrushes, and we buy them in boxes of, of like 12. They're bulk boxes of 12, so very little packaging. And now there's also tooth powders in eco-glass containers or other eco-like metal. I think I've seen some in metal, and they replace plastic toothpaste tubes. And we order all this stuff online. And I've even discovered bamboo band-aids online. So these eco band-aids that are made from bamboo. It's it's so cool. I mean, I I it, I'm just so grateful that there's all these amazing options out there. And of course, these things do cost a little more. So, you know, you've got to work that into your budget and maybe you can't and that's okay Uh, or maybe just a few things so you know all of this has taken me years to transition to this did not all this stuff did not happen overnight so you know how I did it was just focusing on one thing at a time like say the floss you know and I would try some brands figure out what worked how to get it made it routine And then once I was comfortable with that, then moved on to the next thing. So try not to overwhelm yourself, you know, take it as slow as you need to, but be steady about it. Uh, I, I still am trying to improve wherever I can, but I really love this meditation on 
how to live more earth-friendly, how to live more non-violently. It feels good to me, especially when I hear reports like that one I talked about earlier from the IPCC. You know, it's, it's so, if you feel so out of control, it's so big. But this is what I do have control over, what I can change. And I hope that it inspires you to also think about ways that you can reduce your impact. There's so many more ideas and ways to reduce your carbon footprint, but, but I'm going to stop here because we have a really interesting interview to get to. So if you have some thoughts or ideas about how you're making your life more eco-friendly and you want to share those, please go to our Facebook page or our Instagram page and look for this post, the post of this episode, and share your eco-ideas with what you do to make your life less impactful on the environment. Okay, so let's let's move on to our interview now, and I'll just introduce this segment of the show with a few thoughts. So I am a hippie at heart. I wish we could change the world with homemade tofu and bean burgers, but I also have a practical side. And I want a lot of tools in the toolbox to save as many animals as possible, as quickly as possible. And I'm, I'm also kind of a sci-fi fangirl, and I, I love thinking about the replicators on Star Trek and how they have all the meat dishes, but it's all replicated energy, and there was no animal suffering, no animals slaughtered. So the flip side to my, you know, my flower power girl feels that we are gonna need technology to work for us, to work for nature, to help us reverse this horrible strain that we've put on the earth. So I find the technology aspects of the new meat movement really fascinating. And even though I I have my reservations about it, I want to learn about it. I, I totally understand being wary of technology. I'm, I'm a huge skeptic too. But we have to keep in mind that almost everything that humans do is manipulative. I mean, when we lived in huts and, and had fire pits, that's still manipulating nature, right? It's the result of the manipulation that matters, the effect on nature that we have to look at and have to address. So let's find those technologies that that help, that benefit nature, that benefit animals and us, and that will offset the harmful manipulations and the harmful systems that we have in place now. So I put on my geek hat for this interview, and I really hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Today we have Kartik Shaker. He is joining us from the Bay Area here in my area of the world in California. He has a doctorate in chemical engineering from Northwestern University. He researched bioreactor design and systems quantitative biology, and he works uh, as a senior data scientist for Climax Foods. He's been long passionate about getting us to a vegan world, and he's written the book After Meat, The Case for an Amazing Meat-Free World. Welcome to the podcast, Kartik. Thank you, Hope. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad you could join us. So we'd like to start 
all the guests off with your vegan origin story. So why did you go vegan? When did you go vegan? Tell us your, your vegan origin story. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say it started when I was in college. So roughly 15 years ago, I had this notion that eating meat was just uh, bad for the environment. And, you know, I was, I was kind of even just sort of thinking about, you know, it's just kind of absurd that uh, we grow these grains that we feed to animals and then, and then we eat the, you know, flesh and products from the animals and uh, it just it just struck me as um, you know a wasteful process, uh, and so from that vantage, uh, you know, I, I I then decided to become vegetarian in college 15 years ago, mm-hmm. and then I would say about five years ago, I was talking with some friends just about you know animal agriculture and the production of animal products, and someone pointed out to me that in order for us to have dairy dairy products. A, a mom cow, a female cow has to constantly be pregnant. So she has to be, you know, forcibly impregnated. And then she's, you know, birthing, you know, calves. And then, you know, the industry is taking advantage of the resultant milk. And it just sort of hit me <laughs> like a ton of bricks. Like, yeah. uh, you know, of course, like have to make sure that, uh, you know, these um, cows are pregnant in order to, you know, produce milk. And then these calves are, you know, turned into dairy subsidizing veal steaks, you know, through some really, really heinous processes that I'm sure you and your audience are well familiar with. And so from that point, you know, when I had that realization, I, I, I vowed to myself to, to take the full plunge into veganism. And so uh, I've been vegan for about four years and it's been great. Awesome. You know, just to not assume that everyone knows, the calves in the dairy industry, like you were saying, are taken from their mother uh, soon after birth. It causes uh, psychological trauma to the mother cows as well as the babies. And those babies, either if they're males, go to slaughter for veal or beef, and the females then are confined, uh, separated from the mom, separated from each other. And as soon as they are old enough are put back in the system, artificially inseminated. It's, it's a a miserable life for these cows. So yeah, just want to, wanted to, you know, clarify and, and, uh, never assume that, that everyone knows. Yeah. So you have written this book called after meat and you pack a lot into this book. You set us up with a lot to think about. Uh, there is so much in here. You've got the scientific method and evolution and the naturalistic fallacy and really interesting history of, of food technology throughout the book. I mean, you get into psychology and even quantum physics theory. I mean, there's just really a lot. You've got to put on your thinking cap for this one, folks. <laughs> and and I, I appreciated that you had at, at the end of each chapter, a glossary of terms and a chapter summary. And that was very helpful. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of um, information, very intellectual, uh, but also an easy read. I mean, you make it so that it's easy to read. And you even get into mindfulness and meditation. So, so much, really a lot packed into this book. But what we want to talk about is that you talk about 
disruptive technologies and how technologies often have a ceiling. And then there's a, what you call disruptive technology that comes in to improve on the old technology. And you talk about how turning animals into animal products is an inefficient technology. And you mentioned it in your opening statement. And you said in this book, I'll read a quote from the book, quote, animal technology is ultimately limited by its inherent design. So can you explain this? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and first hope, thank you for the, for introducing the book. Yes. Yeah. I know there's a, a lot of threads and a lot of ideas and I hope uh, there's an emergent big picture that makes sense, you know, after reading the book. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, um, you know, you're focusing on the, on the key thesis of the book, which is that animals are inherently limited by their design and they're just not technologically great, you know, for, for production. Mm. And so what I mean by this is, uh, you know, first taking a step back and just sort of talking about technology in general. So technology is, you know, something that we humans uniquely invent to solve problems. So we think about, you know, microwave to heat our food or a computer, you know, to communicate and, you know, do our taxes. And all technology has a limit. There are certain things that technologies can't do. There are certain things that if you improve on it further that, you know, inherently get limited by. You know, so the most intuitive analogy that I use in the book is with light bulbs. So hope you and I can, you know, remember from, you know, 20, 30 years ago that uh, incandescent light bulbs were pervasive. So this is what we use to light our homes and, you know, we're just everywhere. Mm -hmm. And incandescent light bulbs work through the physics of a electrical current surging through a wick. And this wick, when heated, will illuminate. And so basically what you're doing is you're heating the wick and then you're getting illumination. But with the advent of light emitting diode technology or LEDs, we could actually replace uh, the incandescent light bulbs with these LED bulbs. And these bulbs work through the physics of electroluminescence where mm. you just have to flow a current and then you get light. You don't actually have to do any sort of heating of filament. So the previous uh, incandescent light bulb is inherently flawed by design. So it can't really be improved that much further because you always have to heat in order to get light. There's no way to decouple the two. And in contrast, a LED light bulb doesn't have this restriction. You know, you can just get the light. You don't, you don't need the heat. Hmm. And so as a result, the, just the efficiency is just much greater. So LED light bulbs get on average five to 10 times more light per energy input versus an incandescent light bulb. And so in a similar way, you know, using animals to produce meat, dairy, clothing is also flawed by design. And specifically the physics of animals that play here are their, you know, their size. So, so animals grow, you know, pretty big. And so this means that they need extensive circulation systems. So these circulation systems are needed to purvey nutrients around their body and to shuttle waste to exits. You know, because of these circulation systems and because of the size of animals, it actually inherently limits the, the production capabilities. So you can't do things very fast with animals. You know, it takes a cow roughly a full year to grow, you know, to full size. Yeah. 
And then also just in terms of yield, much of your audience and you and I are just very familiar of how wasteful the animal agriculture industry is. So, you know, just for perspective, about um, only three to 4% of what's fed to cows is, is actually like REIT in terms of like a physical product in terms of, um, in terms of mass. So that means, you know, you feed, you know, hundred grams to a cow, you get roughly three to four grams in actual like meat, dairy, or clothing. And, and part of the reason why it's so wasteful is because of things like a circulation system that, um, you know, a cow has to, you know, spend resources to run the circulation system. So can you explain what you mean by a, the circulatory system or how that relates? Just, just kind of clarify that. Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify. So when I mean circulation system, I mean like the blood circulation and the cow's metabolism. Ah. So yes, yes. So, so, so we can kind of think of it this way. So when a cow eats food, uh, that food is metabolized. I think it's useful to think about it being metabolized to energy. And that energy can kind of go to one of two places. So it can go to what's called maintenance functions. So maintenance is just anything needed for the cow to, you know, to live, right? So, so a cow, you know, needs to breathe. A cow has a beating heart. A cow has a consciousness. A cow has to, you know, be able to detect, you know, friend or foe socialize, you know, so forth. So she will, you know, naturally use some of that, you know, food that she consumes to energize, you know, some of these metabolic processes. And the other sink of where this, you know, energy input is going in terms of metabolism is the cow's biomass. So, you know, she's, she's building muscle, she's building fat, she's, she's building bone. And this biomass is what animal agriculture is, is reaping, right? So this is what they're, they're monetizing mm. and, you know, turning into animal products. Uh-huh. And, and so my argument in, in after meat is that just because of the physical design of cows from an evolutionary standpoint, they can never, you know, produce that much biomass versus maintenance. So, so they're always going to have a significant maintenance cost. And this naturally detracts from, from the overall process. So, mm-hmm. so you, you feed, you know, hundred grams of grain, you only get three to four grams of, you know, meat, dairy, or clothing. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. And I'll just add that, that there is the, the factor of outside inputs of resources that are so, you know, energy intensive and uh, all the grain and water that's wasted. Uh, it's just a, a, a wasted process. You're not getting out as much as you're putting in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so animals are an inefficient technology and we're exposing that now as animal activists. So producers of animal products are, are now trying to, you know, quote, improve their pollutive and harmful industry with things like uh, regenerative grazing and methane capture and other, quote, improved technologies. Why is this not the path we should take? Why do we need to disrupt the entire system? I love this question, Hope. It's a great question. And I should, I should say that regenerative agriculture, you know, has really come to head more recently. So yeah, basically yeah. After, after I finished the book, but if this had happened earlier, I would have definitely taken my time to, to just dismantle this, this idea of regenerative animal agriculture. Mm. 
Yeah. So, so the issue is, you know, as, as I was kind of emphasizing in the last answer is that animals are just inherently flawed. Like there's, there's just a limit of what we can do with them and any sort of, you know, dressing and, you know, interventions that we come into, you know, come into it, it's just not going to be as great as a, as a potential replacer and, and developing that replacer further. So for example, I would like to highlight land usage. I think land usage is probably, you know, one of the biggest environmental costs to animal agriculture. Yeah. And, and, you know, to appreciate the magnitude of the problem, you know, I've seen figures that 30% of the ice-free land on planet earth is being, you know, used for animal agriculture. So that's to, you know, either, you know, raise animals or to grow the crops that then feed animal agriculture. And the reason why this occurs is because animals are just so inefficient. So, you know, it, it takes a nearly a year for a cow to grow, you know, full size. And so if you had an alternative technology, you know, like microbial fermentation, which grows um, about a thousand to 10,000 times faster than cows, you would need a fraction of the same amount of land. And so regenerative agriculture, you know, doesn't solve, you know, all these problems. So it doesn't actually solve the land usage problem. In fact, it actually exacerbates it. it. Right. Uses more land. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, concentrated animal feeding operations, they are definitely awful from like, you know, an ethical point of view, but I would actually argue they're the outgrowth of the inefficiencies of, of animals, right? Producers have figured out, you know, you, you stuff animals in close quarters and you force feed them you get a more economically viable process. Yeah. And so to turn to something like regenerative animal agriculture, we're, we're kind of going back, you know, to where we were before and, you know, making something very expensive and, and, and actually in some ways, even more environmentally calamitous. So instead, the best strategy for us is just to abandon animals as a production technology and find, find and develop newer ones, such as microbial fermentation. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to ask you about this because, of course, we're, we're throwing out these big, interesting words, uh, microbial fermentation. Uh, but and, and that will be my next question. But I did want to just pull on this a little bit further. And, and I loved how in your book you talked about disruptive technologies and how it's not necessarily like you use the light bulb analogy, but I liked your car analogy as well, because sometimes the replacement is something completely different. I mean, we replaced the horse. And like you said in the book, not with a mechanical horse, right? It's something completely different, the car. I thought that was really interesting. And so the replacement technology, the disruptive technology can sometimes be very, very different. And so now let's talk about fermentation engineering and microbial fermentation. And, and this is what you're mainly talking about in the book. This is what you mainly propose. First of all, tell us what it is, just kind of break it down what it is. And, and I was really fascinated to read in your book that there's already products like this on the market. Corn, spelled Q-U-O-R-N, is a meat-free uh, product that's been on the market for a while now, and they're not all vegan. They, some of their products are vegetarian, some are vegan, but that's made from a, from a fungal single-celled organism, you pointed out in your book, probably grown in a bioreactor, I assume. So, so tell us about all this. Why is this fermentation engineering 
good for the planet. Why do you propose this? Sure, sure. Yes. And despite, uh, you know, the high sounding words, fermentation engineering and, you know, fermentation technology is actually a fairly ancient technology. It's actually one of our oldest food technologies. Hmm. So I'll start with uh, just probably the most salient case in which we understand fermentation, and that's with uh, alcoholic beverages. So when we make beer, we, you know, start with a grain, typically barley, that barley is boiled and homogenized into a, a sugar solution. And, uh, and that sugar solution is cooled down and we seed it with, uh, with yeast, with baker's yeast. And the yeast will actually eat the sugars within this uh, sugary wort solution, the sugary grain solution. They'll do this in a bioreactor. Bio so a bioreactor, <laughs> you know, in this case, your audience can just imagine a big bucket. It's, it's really nothing... It's really not much more sophisticated than that. Kind of like a big vat, right? A big vat. Yes. Yeah. You might. Yeah. You'll have control over things like temperature, oxygen, maybe things like pH, but you can just kind of think of it at like a vat with a little bit more bells and whistles in, in terms of controlling the environment. And the controlling of the environment becomes important for these microbes, such as yeast, because, um, you know, as we learned, you know, through thousands of years of human history, these microbes, when they eat these sugars, they'll actually convert it to alcohol, you know, CO2, to other, you know, aromatic compounds. So, you know, if you're a fan of, you know, craft beers, those, those rich aromas come from these microbes eating the sugars and, and, and basically chemically converting them to these, um, to these flavor compounds. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's a classic, you know, fermentation with the example of, of making beer. And with more modern fermentation engineering and, and fermentation technology, the alternative food space is, you know, starting to take notice. And, you know, corn, Q-U-O-R-N, is a great example. And the way this works is it's a, it's a microbe. It's a, it's a single cell uh, fungus. So, so it's actually a fungus. It's not a bacteria. Huh. And yes, it's grown in a bioreactor and it produces this, uh, this protein matrix. So it basically secretes this protein. Uh, it's what's called a mycelium. So, so if you've had mushroom, like, you know, you, you're, you're buying mushrooms, you know, from the farmer's market or you're forging it yourself, you know, that, that, that sort of like spongy matrix is the mycelium. Hmm. And yeah, so you have this, uh, you have this mycelium mush and then, and then it can be fashioned into quote unquote meat products, you know, so you huh. can make your nuggets, you can make your, your steaks, you can make your quote unquote chicken breasts, mm. um, you know, much in the same way that like the, you know, traditional meat processing industry makes it from, from the meat mash. Okay. Okay. And, and you were saying that this, this technology is not really necessarily new. Uh, you said in your book that the Egyptians were brewing beer four to 5,000 years ago, and that there's a lot of fermented products already on the market, like we just mentioned corn, the meatless meat, but also coffee and chocolate and Tabasco sauce. I had no idea that these were fermented foods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I, I guess I need to get to the punchline on, you know, why I'm so excited by fermentation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so aside from just the fact that we've actually been doing it for a long time and, you know, so something that we know, you know, works well in, in a food context, the other advantage is just the, just the numbers, just the production numbers. They, they just blow animal technology out of the water. 
So to put this in perspective, uh, so if we had a bathtub-sized bioreactor, so you know something you know say running like a like a corn process, that could replace about ten thousand cows. Wow. So you know, kind of going back to the regenerative, you know, animal agriculture argument, those uh, proponents for animal, uh, for regenerative animal agriculture, you know, talk about like environmental benefits, but to me, like, okay, let's, let's have a reactor that replaces 10,000 cows and, you know, just free up all that land and do whatever we want with it. You know, we can, we can plant more trees, we can, you know, revitalize wildlife, you know, there's just, it just gives us much more flexibility when it comes to, comes to the good we can do. Yeah. And if it's 10,000 cows, then it must be a hundred thousand or more chickens and probably well above that fish because their little bodies are so much smaller. Yeah. So it just, it seems like, you know, you could really, I mean, just save so many animals lives with this technology. hundred percent. Yes. You could probably save. Yeah. So if, if one bioreactor is 10,000 cows, yes, I would agree with that math. It, it's probably about a hundred thousand chickens at least. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And like you said, also being able to rewild that land, bring it back to its natural state, make it a carbon sink. So it's uh, uh, sequestering carbon. Um, That's what we need so badly is way more land that is rewilded and sequestering carbon. So there's companies that are now looking at ways to use this technology to create not only just meat, but like whey and casein and gelatin, all of those kind of byproducts of animals that uh, we use for so many different things. So this technology you could use for anything like that, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. But yes, just at a, at a high level, yeah, I'm just really excited by the, the burgeoning number of companies you know, investing into microbial fermentation. And you know, I actually had the opportunity to try a microbial fermentation steak about a month ago. Oh wow! And and it was it was it was so good. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been probably like twenty years since I've actually had a steak, right? <laughs> but, uh, so so not that I can you know really compare. It, yeah, <laughs> really compare. Yeah. But um, uh, but if I were to be able to buy it at a grocery store at a reasonable price, I, I totally would. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. So there's companies now that are working on this. And so we can do meat, fish, flesh, I'm assuming chicken flesh. What, what do you see coming down the pipe with this fairly, you know, in the more recent, maybe in five years or so? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And yeah. So in the horizon, you know, in the past few years, you know, we've seen the biggest progress with the milks 10 years ago, the best you could do in terms of alternative food, oh, sorry, in terms of alternative milk was soy milk. But now you have almond milk, oat milk, macadamia nut milk. Yeah. It's, it's just um, pea milk. Cashew, hemp, everything. Yeah. Everything. And I think even like my local Starbucks has, you know, three different kinds of, of alternative milks. Yeah. You know, we've seen great progress with, uh, with the ground meats. So, you know, things like ground beef in terms of like the impossible burger, the beyond burger. And I would say what's next on the horizon is, um, our, our cheese. So, so, so cheese is still, you know, a really hard problem. Uh, you know, vegan cheeses right now tend to rely on starches and gums mm. in order to get, you know, that stretchiness and meltability that, right. that dairy cheese has. 
And, and dairy cheese is able to, you know, stretch and melt because of the casein protein. So the casein protein imparts all these functions that are in, in dairy cheese. And, and a casein is, is a specific animal protein. It's a specific animal protein. Yes. Yes. And there's unfortunately no obvious analog in the plant or microbial world. Mm. And right now I would say this is actually like a holy grail of the alternative food space, you know, you know, so my company, you know, we're looking for it in the plant world and, you know, just trying to see if we can, you know, have plant products that, you know, reproduce the function or plant, plant ingredients that reproduce the function of, of casein. Mm. And then, you know, there are companies um, such as Perfect Day that are taking this fermentative approach of, of taking the gene for casein and then, and then trying to grow it, you know, in microbes in a fermentation. Okay. Now, so let me unpack that a little bit. So you said, take the gene. So that's not taking it from the animal. Does this start with an animal cell? It does not. No. Right. That's what I thought. It's completely plant-based. Yes. Uh, It's well, it's fungi or bacterial based. Uh, Okay. Right. Well, okay. (laughs) So not animal though, not a sentient animal. Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So there's no sentient animal involved in the process. So the gene the gene is already known. So this is really just letters at this oh, point on a, on a screen. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so we know everyone might recall that DNA is, you know, four letters, A, C, G, T, right. Okay. And, and so a gene is the sequence of these uh, A, C, G, T's to, you know, code for, for, for something like a casein protein. And so this can actually just be completely synthesized, you know, without an animal. So you can, you can, you can actually physically synthesize a, a DNA gene with that sequence of ACGTs. And then that completely newly synthesized DNA sequence slash gene can be inserted into bacteria or fungi. And then the bacteria or fungi now, now have instructions to, to produce the casein protein. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. That's amazing. Okay. Well, I, I, I feel like I could just ask a hundred questions uh, about this, about specifically about this fermentation process, but I did want to uh, move us in a different direction for just a bit, because I found this really interesting as well in your book. I actually went into this book I started reading this book thinking that you would be a proponent of cell-based meat. What it has so many names now, the lab-grown meat, sometimes called cultured meat, clean meat. I think clean meat is one that they're going with uh, more recently. And, and this is, I'll explain, is where they actually do take a cell, um, a sample from a living animal and replicate it. But you actually don't see this as a viable or long-term strategy, and you prefer the microbial fermentation technology. And, and I found this really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of the cultured meat either. I can understand and see the benefit. I see why so many in the animal rights community promote it. But there are some in the animal rights community that have issue with it, and and there's there's lots of reasons. I don't want to get into all the reasons, but but one that bothers me, the one that bothers me the most, is that we're still using animals. We we're still taking a living cell from a living animal, and it and it's actually meat. We're actually growing meat. So 
so we're still seeing animals as food, as commodities. It doesn't feel like animal liberation to me. And I feel like there, I feel like there, there has to be that what I might call connective tissue of speciesism, uh, you know, liberation, uh, recognizing speciesism with this shift in food. I feel like the 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 clean meat, the cell based meat, doesn't doesn't have that um, component, that uh, animal liberation component. And what concerns me is that we could possibly too easily slip back into meat eating if we don't recognize speciesism, or, or it could just reduce to a seemingly sustainable level uh, of meat and animals will still suffer. So we wouldn't have total animal liberation is what I'm concerned about with this technology. But but you have a different reasoning for veering away from this technology. So can you tell us why in your book you do implore animal activists not to promote cell-based meat? Yes. Thanks, Hope. This is a great question. Uh, yeah. So I guess maybe it's first worth disambiguating like all the terms here just yeah. because um <laughs> it gets you know, confusing yeah there's a, there's a lot of nuance yeah yes so uh and yes as you as you highlighted the terminology blurs and you know is is often convoluted yeah so i'll, I'll use it definitionally as as follows so yeah so i talk about fermentation based meat and what i mean by fermentation based meat is that's a you know a microbe so that's a bacteria bacterium or a single cell fungi that's uh, producing the meat. Mm. And then, yeah, hope the cultured meat, or I'll use the term in vitro meat, because I think that's the most, most uh, precise term, is yes, taking a viable stem cell from an animal and then using that in a bioreactor to grow it into a you know, full-blown steak or, or chicken breast. So in terms of ethics, I, I definitely, I think we can both appreciate that you know, veganism is, is not a monolith. And people have different reasons for entering veganism, ethical reasons included. And I consider myself first and foremost an ethical vegan. You know, the commodification of animals, I will admit, I, I see less of a problem with. For me, the more extant problem is just the just the magnitude of unnecessary suffering. So that's really, you know, what motivates me. That's really what rouses me. And so I could see a scenario where it's at least like more ethically palatable. You know, you could have like, say, a feather being able to turn, you know, that one feather into, into a process that's basically replacing, you know, chicken breasts from chickens just, just seems like a, a very noble effort, you know, sure. in my view. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to be transparent about my stance there. Sure. But um, yeah, my concerns are, are just are actually more practical. I actually see the process of taking a stem cell and then growing it into say a chicken breast as being very, very difficult for, for scientific reasons. So you have to basically change how bioreactors are designed. Uh, so one issue is that stem cells are not notoriously delicate. So you have to have like a very delicate bioreactor and bioreactors are just generally not meant for that. <laughs> they hmm. tend to, they tend to just put a lot of, um, a lot of force on the cells. Hmm. So things like bacteria and, and yeast are just much more hardy to the way we run bioreactors. And then, and then also just like the programming aspect of it. So you, you take the stem cell and then you have to program it into becoming, you know, a chicken breast. 
and that's that's not a trivial process. So that requires very precise like control over the chemical environment and the physical environment. So you have to, you know, give the right chemicals at the right times. It just seems to me to be a a very difficult process to develop. And in the long run, you know, I think it might not even matter because kind of going back to what we're saying about, you know, technology replacing other technology, microbial fermentation, you know, still just might be better in the long run. And so why try to go for this, uh, this in vitro meat technology that's just going to be really difficult and, you know, very fraught, you know, we should just skip that altogether and go to microbial fermentation. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I and I I I do hear you. I understand that there's good intention in the in vitro meat and I would assume that the majority of people are in it for really altruistic reasons. Uh, I think my concerns are kind of philosophical and big picture. So it's, you know, a little um uh, not on the practical level, but I but I do see I understand the altruistic intentions uh but still feel uncomfortable with it that it's actually meat you know yeah <laughs> so yeah it's it's uh, interesting so i so i really love this fermentate what we what did you call it fermentation based meat is that what you yes. called it yeah yes. yeah so cool and and actually i just want to respond to that so i do think sensibilities just about the ethics of, of veganism are just going to continue to grow and grow and grow as, as the alternative food industry just expands. And, you know, we're seeing this right now in the, in the UK, you know, I heard a stat that something like a third of new restaurants in London are plant-based. Wow. And, and a lot of what's driving that, you know, just from the surveys that I've seen is a concern for, for ethics. So, so people are just, you know, increasingly concerned about the suffering and, you know, commodification of animals as, yeah. as you're highlighting, you know, I see it as these, these two forces really working together, the technological forces, you know, just, just creating and making better alternatives. And then at the same time, it just makes it easier and easier for people, you know, to grow their sensibilities. Mm. Yeah. And be in line with their values. I'm, I'm actually curious. I have another question. Can this fermentation process work for materials like leather? Yes, yes, actually. And there are a couple of companies working on that. So there's really? Microworks. Yeah, yeah. So fairly local to where I live. Uh, so Microworks is working on leather and they're, they're releasing their material on luxury handbags. And then there's- Oh, so there's they're, already, they're already kind of going to be bringing this leather to market soon. They are. Yes. Wow. Yes. And okay. Yes. Yes. And they, so, so they're starting with expensive handbags and, you know, of course the plan is to expand, to get to something more affordable and, mm -hmm. you know, and more scalable. And there's also a company Geltor, which is focusing on fermentation based uh, collagen and gelatin, ah. which, you know, have a variety of material uses. So, you know, there's and a lot you know, in beauty products. Yes. Um, yeah. Makeup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So they're partnering with, uh, with, with makeup companies that can use their fermentation drived uh, collagen gelatin and collagen gelatin are also key components of, of leather. So I could see oh. that um, being roped into a leather process as okay. well. Wow. Fascinating. So 
What do you think are the most important efforts that someone interested in a vegan future can do? Yes. So I think we need to normalize veganism. So we need more people just to be proud and to be unabashed about, mm. you know, being vegan. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot about, you know, the non-religious movement of, you know, the nineties and early two thousands where, you know, I felt like a pariah for espousing a disbelief in God and not, not uh, being religious. And, you know, today it's just not a big deal. Like it's, 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 it's actually just a fairly uninteresting, you know, factoid, <laughs> if any, if, if anything. Uh-huh. And, and I'm waiting for that day with veganism. You know, I think we're going to get to that day where it's just totally commonplace and, and nondescript, even getting to a point where it's the default <laughs> expectation of, of everyone. Yeah, yeah. And, and the way that occurs is just by, yeah, just being public with it. Obviously, vegans have this unfair characterization as being obnoxious. But, you know, I think being good role models, you know, inviting non-vegans to dinner parties, just being a part of the world, I think is, is, is a huge is a huge effort that every vegan can do to, you know, push progress. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, some other big ticket items is, you know, getting rid of animal agriculture subsidies. This, this, yeah. these, um, these subsidies, you know, prop up a dying industry. We need to let this industry die. You know, these, these subsidies just make it harder. And I would love to see more advocacy slash uh, lobbying to try to get uh, the United States government to decrease the amount of subsidies going to animal agriculture. Yeah, such a good point. So you've published this book, After Meat. What's next for you in terms of your advocacy work? Yes, so I'm still working on content and you know, promoting the book, doing podcasts you know, such as this one and interviews and you know, just trying to you know, spread the gospel <laughs> whenever, uh-huh. whenever I can about uh, <laughs> you know, animals being a support technology. Yeah. And so one of the reasons I wrote After Meat was to really try to reach this uh, left-brained audience when it comes to veganism. Mm-hmm. So I think veganism has done a great job reaching- And you, and you mean by, you, what you mean by that is more kind of an intellectual and technological level, maybe? Exactly. That you mean by that? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I think about like, you know, my graduate school colleagues, you know, people I did my doctorate program with who, you know, are just really smart analytical people- but have this profound ethical blind spot mm. and can't necessarily be swayed by, you know, their heartstrings being tugged at, but they can be very swayed by, you know, a technological argument and, and seeing that, you know, we're going to be able to do better. And it's, it's actually not going to be a compromise in terms of taste, cost, and nutrition. It's very logical. Yeah. Yeah. And so to that end, yes, I, I'm doing more promotion of the book. Uh, and then beyond that, I'm also generating content based off of the book and, you know, expanding on it further. And so a couple things I'll highlight. So one was a recent, was a recent piece I wrote talking about shifting the curve. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, so in the long run, we're, we're going to have a vegan future. Like it's, it's inevitable. There's, there's very little that anyone can do to, to prevent that. So the question is how soon can we, you know, get to that vegan future, right? Can we get there, you know, in 10 years versus 20 years? Mm. If we if we can move up the timeline, that just has profound positive consequences. Yeah. 
So uh, to put it in perspective, something like 70 billion animals are slaughtered every year for animal agriculture, right? And if you think about your effort of advocacy or ordering a vegan meal at a restaurant that doesn't have many vegan meals, you can kind of think of it as you know, moving this curve up in terms of the timeline. And it's significant. So 70 billion animals per year translates to 8 million animals for one hour, right? So you, know, you, you have an effort that shifts the timeline up by one hour, you save 8 million animals. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, the animals saved by the meat avoided. It's also the animals saved by shifting this curve up. Well, Kartik, I have enjoyed this so much and I have learned so much and it's just been really, really fascinating. I wish we could talk all day, uh, but we do need to wrap up. And I, I like to end with this question. What gives you hope for the future? Yes. Uh, first of all, Hope, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This is uh, a very, very fun conversation for me too. Yeah. I also learned a lot too, just uh, talking with you and understanding you know, different perspectives in the veganism movement. What gives me hope for the future is, is progress. So we're starting to see glimmers of this, if not, uh, if, if not more glaring signals. Just this past weekend, I was on a biking trip with a friend and we stopped by a random cafe in, in Richmond, California. So this is a cafe like I had never been to. And about 80% of the baked goods were vegan. Wow. And, you know, I didn't go on a happy cow or anything to search for this place. I just, right. <laughs> uh, I just uh, you know, just happened upon it. And I was just blown away. And, you know, it just, it just goes to that hope slash expectation I have, you know, for the normalization of, of veganism and, you know, really getting us past this calamitous industry. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's what, that's what drives me. And, you know, as you mentioned, my day job is working at Climax Foods. So I, I get to, you know, join the fray directly and yeah, I will continue to push and continue to, you know, hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. There was actually one last thing yeah, that, yeah. you know, would be great to mention. Yeah. So all the proceeds of After Meat are being donated to causes that spur this vegan future. So, wow. So groups like Fun Analytics, which which does a lot of research and yes, you know generates yeah. a lot of data. And then also, I don't want money to be a reason that people can't access the book. So it's actually downloadable if you go to my website. So there are links for both the audiobook as well as a litany of different digital versions. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to include those in the show notes so people can link to them easily. Perfect. Great. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for this amazing book. And I'm also excited for an amazing meat-free world, which is the subtitle of your book. So thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Hope. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I, I love that Karthik said that a vegan future is inevitable and that there's very little anyone can do to stop that from happening. That's it's so exciting to me and hopeful to me. And you know how you hear about something or you hear a new word or a new concept and suddenly it's everywhere? Well, I just got an email from VegNews the day that I'm writing the notes for this podcast 
that was talking about a new company making animal-free whey, which whey, which is an animal protein, using, and I'll quote the email here, precision fermentation where microflora, tiny living organisms used in everyday items such as vitamins and probiotics, take the place of a cow in creating dairy-identical milk proteins. So they're talking about this new fermentation technology that we were just talking about in the interview. So this new tech is here. The future is vegan, folks. If you felt that this episode was informative and interesting, please support us and help us to reach more listeners. If you're listening on an app, scroll down and give us that five-star rating or write a review. If you have the means, perhaps you can support us with a small monthly donation on Patreon and be a patron of the show. Thank you for caring about the earth and all her animals. Happy Earth Day. Do something special for the earth for Earth Day. Show this precious planet, our our beautiful home, that you want to love and protect her and live vegan.